3: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time to go into the vault for a classic episode of the show. This one is part two of our series on the invention of the book. It originally aired May 28th, 2020. I say let's uh, get right into chapter, well, I would say chapter one, volume two, chapter one.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about the invention of the book. Now, if you didn't listen to the last episode, you should probably go back and listen to that one first. That was the invention of the book, part one, where we talked about what constitutes a book conceptually, what are the earliest things that might be thought of to count as a book in the archaeological record. Uh, We talked about various materials on which ancient writings were printed, you know, from hard surfaces and steels into things like. uh, papyrus and and parchment and vellum. But today we wanted to come back and talk a little bit more about the overall form of books. And I thought a great place to start with here would be one of the most significant transitions in the history of books. And that is the transition between the scroll and the codex. And to, just to put you in the right frame of mind for this have you ever thought about how once upon a time you had to rewind books oh absolutely when you think about uh, the, the way a scroll
1: works and indeed how you know some electronic uh, versions uh, of documents work as well where you want is scrolling through the document uh, it, it is like very much like say the, the ribbon in a VCR tape it is a, a thing that has a beginning and an end and uh, and if, if you were to jump around in it you were going to have to scroll through it
0: you know, I know there must be uh, some writing attesting to this in the ancient world, but I just wonder if you had like an ancient library, did you have the like the the video store problem of the person who checked out the scroll before you didn't rewind it and you have to take <laughs> it back from the end to the beginning?
1: Yeah, or those like poorly wound or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it's always the case with, with books I mean, books are are. Precious objects and were even more precious in the past books scrolls whatever uh, you know uh, you want to refer to this compiled uh, a form of written knowledge and yeah if it's something that is communal in nature you don't want the person before you mistreating it
0: right so so this world where you had to rewind books this was of course the world of the scroll which was the most prominent physical form of the book throughout you know much of the Mediterranean world North Africa Europe the Middle East um, and unlike the codex model that we're familiar with today. Remember, again, the codex is basically like the books we know today, where uh, there's a spine where the pages are attached, and you can leaf through the pages to read the text. Uh, The scroll was essentially one really long page that was made by attaching successive sheets of material, usually would be papyrus or parchment, end to end uh, with either glue or with stitching. You could sew them together. And then to read a scroll, of course, as you would make your way through, you would unroll the the long sheet from uh, from a from a winding stick on one end, and then you would roll it up on the other one. And a scroll could unravel either vertically or horizontally. And the direction of the rolling for a particular document often depended on what language was being written. Like, was the script naturally oriented vertically or horizontally? Uh, last time in in the previous episode, I mentioned the book uh, the book the life story of a technology by Nicole Howard, which we were using as one of our references. And Howard draws attention to a number of basic practical limitations of the scroll, some of which I'd never considered before. But I thought these were really interesting in in helping us think about what would cause the transition from the scroll to the codex over time. So even with scrolls, you might think that the idea of pages, having pages in a document, you know, these sort of like blocked out sections of the text, uh, that that would emerge with the codex because it's natural to leaf through the pages. But Howard points out that there was sometimes a need for something like the concept of a page, even in a scroll, because just imagine trying to read a scroll. Imagine you are writing in a script that flows horizontally like English. It goes from left to right. And you're working with a scroll that unravels horizontally. Do you write one line that goes the entire 50 feet or whatever of the entire scroll and then back up, rewind the entire thing, and then start on the second line? I mean, that's obviously impractical. So instead, Howard writes that sometimes scribes would mark off columns of text of some manageable length, maybe a few inches wide, and then once the column was filled down to the bottom, you would start at the top of a new column. Basically, these would. Be pages just like in a book, except you would roll and unroll them instead of leafing through them. But she also points out a really obvious disadvantage of the scroll, and this is uh, in addition to the need to rewind your when you're done with the scroll it is going to be really tedious to jump to places in the middle or end of a document to reference something. Mm. Uh, So imagine it's, you know, the Bible and you want to reference a particular verse early books might, might not even have had page numbers like foldable, you know, codex books might not have had page uh, numbers on the pages, but Imagine it, even without page numbers to refer to, it's just going to be so much easier to leaf through and find a later passage in a codex than it is going to be uh, to roll through and find a later passage in a scroll, mostly due to the ease of page flipping as a mechanical action as opposed to the rolling and unrolling action. This is interesting. It makes me think
1: of of e-books once again, because for for my own money, well, first of all, I want to say that... Sometimes uh, I'll use ebooks when researching this podcast, and in those cases, I'll use a browser based. Um like Kindle Reader, uh, which allows me to jump around a lot and do word searches and so mm-hmm. forth, uh, that mm-hmm. is a little more flexible. But for if, for my like more personal reading, if I'm reading a novel uh, in ebook form, I'll use my Kindle. And when I'm using the Kindle, I have the experience uh, that is more like a scroll, where I find that I'm I'm generally going just straight through it. And if I jump around, I risk losing my spot. And part of that, maybe I just don't know how to use the Kindle properly. I'm you know my be a little user error on on my part. But for the most part, I feel like I've just got to keep going. I can't jump around. I can't go back. And if it is a book that I know has uh, like a glossary at the end or some sort of encyclopedia related to the world, something like, uh, say, an R. Scott Baker book, uh, then I'm just not going to get that in in an electronic form. I'm going to get the hard copy so Mm. I can flip around, so I could go to the back and look up characters or places or wars and see how they relate to the 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 spot that I'm reading in.
0: Yeah, my experience is exactly like yours. I find that if it's uh, so when I'm talking about an ebook, if it's a book I'm using for a reference, I really only want to read it on a desktop so that I can like use the mouse to navigate with the slider and use the search function easily and all that. If it's a book that I'm just reading for pleasure, I'd rather read it like on my phone. Uh where I can just leaf through the pages one at a time. But yeah, in in that format, it is tedious to try to flip back and forth to end notes or whatever. You know, I have
1: to drag in Dungeons & Dragons a little bit here. I don't know to (laughs) what extent this was intentional, but one thing that you see in Dungeons & Dragons with spell books and spell scrolls is that a spell book is something you reference. It's something like your your wizard character carries around or picks up and learns new spells from. But a spell scroll is is this this more like magical text that is consumed as you read it to read the scroll is to is to cast the spell that is contained in the magical writing in the scroll
0: itself and then afterwards it is gone that's very interesting. I mean, that seems to reflect some kind of knowledge about the differences of these two formats. Uh, And it does make you wonder about the different psychological effects of reading cultures based on a scroll versus reading cultures based on a, on a codex, right? Yeah. I can't help but wonder how
1: it alters the metaphor of internal narrative, you know, to have to flip rather than to scroll. Now, now granted, I imagine literacy was, you know, not widespread enough for the technological metaphor to be that meaningful, you know, to the, the, the majority of the population in ancient times, but it's interesting to think about. I also think it's interesting to think about personal reading, uh, like the reading that you know someone does uh, on their own in a quiet room. As inherently invoking an internal narrative or voice as opposed to the external narrative voice that you would get through, say communal storytelling or communal singing, you know these other modes of sharing a
0: a story or a text with other people uh, it, it also you know it makes me wonder about how the The format, the scroll versus the codex, would cause people to think differently about what books were for. Like if a scroll-based culture, I wonder, would be more likely to suggest that you should read through an entire book at once in order rather than using it as something to consult isolated sections from. Uh, On one hand, you know, I wonder that, and that is kind of a commonsensical a bit of induction from the idea of a scroll. But honestly, then again, I would say I don't necessarily see a lot of direct evidence of this. Like it does seem like ancient religious texts in scroll cultures were pretty thoroughly consulted for isolated quotes in a, in a piecemeal fashion. I mean, I think about like the rabbinical tradition in Judaism, which was very scroll based at the time. Uh, But then again, I don't know. Like, um, I wonder, here's another thing. Does a scroll culture maybe place more emphasis on the memorization of books and narratives that you read? Mm, maybe so.
1: And then I also can't help but think maybe part of this is just we are, we are not scroll based uh, individuals, ours is not a scroll based culture. So of course, we, we see like, we imagine the, the regular use of scrolls as being somewhat alien and clumsy. But I guess if one is versed in the use of scrolls, if one is accustomed to it, you know, obviously,
0: you're going to have, uh, you know, more flexibility in using one. Totally. I I, I do get the impression that that it is generally just easier, you know, like you like there are strict efficiency advantages to the codex over the scroll, but that those are magnified by being unfamiliar with how to use the scroll.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: But then uh, so I want to go back to another thing Nicole Howard talks about, which I hadn't really thought about much, but this is interesting as well. So to read a scroll, you often needed to use either both hands at the same time, or you needed to set it on a desk with a with a pair of weights to hold the open section down and keep it from rolling around. So, uh, so th- you know, like think of the ease with which you can hold a book, a codex book, open in one hand and write down notes or copy text with the other hand. Or with some books, you know, if it's a, a very nicely bound book and it's got the right balance of weight and everything. You don't even need one hand. You can just set it down on a desk and leave it open or put it on a reading stand and it stays open to your place. Scrolls were usually nowhere near this convenient. And, uh, and I think we've often talked about the underappreciated evolutionary advantage of technologies or methods that allow free hands while in use. I think this is very clearly a case of that. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you get into the use of these various grimoires,
1: uh, these uh, these sacred books, uh, you know, they're they're often intended to be taken with you. You know, a lot of times they are they are handy travel volumes of important
0: texts that may be carried on your person as opposed to you know left in the scriptorium. And I mean, if we're going to use a biological analogy, obviously books are things much like genes that get reproduced through copying. And Mm -hmm. so in a way, you could almost think of books that are easier to copy as having a kind of sexual selection advantage, right? Like it's easier for them to reproduce. If a book is easier to make a copy of because you can hold it in one hand or set it down easily while you copy it onto another sheet. I mean, I wonder if that literally results in just more copies of those types of books getting made yeah i mean it's i know it ultimately makes it more readable and like we
1: said in the last episode a book that is not read or cannot be read in some ways isn't a book like it, like so much of it is about the the transference of information
0: and not just the collection of information yeah totally uh, so here's another interesting issue howard raises When you're pulling a a book like we have today off the shelf, do you have a hard time figuring out which book to grab? I mean, usually no, right? Because the the titles are right there on the spine. It's totally easy to find what you're looking for. Right. And even if the
1: spine does not have the title or the spine has been taped over, etc., you just flip it open. You go
0: right to the the title page, the copyright page. You can find all the information you need. Right. The issue of identifying documents quickly from within a large collection was nowhere near this easy in scroll-based cultures of the ancient world. Howard writes, quote, readers of scrolls dealt with the problem of identification by applying small tags to the upper edges of scrolls. In Greek, these were called syllibos, which is where we get the, uh, the term syllabus. Uh, and she goes on, while the Romans referred to them as titulus, which is where we get the term title. Tags made it easier to organize and identify scrolls, but there remained the problem of storage. Being rounded, they did not lend themselves to neat stacking. Instead, scrolls were placed in groups in a stone or wooden jar known in Greek as a bibliotheca. And there's a great piece of terminology like etymology there think of how this jar library this jar that had scrolls in it influenced the names for library buildings in the romance languages today you know the spanish yeah. word for a library is biblioteca absolutely yeah though there's a funny perhaps false etymology that always followed from that in my head which is uh, also the spanish word discoteca for discoteque which makes me think it's like the disc library I don't know, <laughs> that probably doesn't quite work out right but howard also acknowledges that bookmaking in the ancient world was not a uniform industry right it wasn't like they had you know factories that would uh that would print all these books in this exactly similar way For many centuries, scrolls were the standard, but you would find weird exceptions here and there. And she cites the examples of books made out of papyrus and parchment that were stored not in scrolls, but by folding like a map or folding Mm -hmm. in an accordion style. And while this format was unusual at the time, that accordion style fold may well have set an important precedent because The accordion-style fold, if you think about it, would have actually allowed for finding a place in a document more easily with a flipping motion through the folded sections rather than the tedious rolling and unrolling of a scroll.
1: And, of course, we still see this form um, all the time, not only with maps, uh, but also with uh, menus and, more importantly,
0: brochures. Oh, totally though just trying to imagine <laughs> I, I, like those big maps that fold out and you got to find the right way to fold it back or you'll be putting the wrong direction creases in when you try to oh
1: yeah and it, it'll, it'll be, be uh it won't be flat it'll be like a little
0: uh, little puffy and then it doesn't actually go back where you're stowing your maps yeah mm-hmm. imagine trying to to map fold your edition of moby dick that sounds like <laughs> a nightmare Uh, But so where does the actual codex come in? Remember, the the codex format, again, is the book that's still in use today and involves stacks of pages folded inward, fastened at a spine, which you read by leafing through one page to the next. We mentioned in the last episode that it seems like the codex started to be produced in the Roman world around the first century. Uh, Nicole Howard points to a very important predecessor technology, though, which likely gave rise to the codex, and this is a technology known... Known as the diptych. So the easiest way to imagine a diptych is to picture a hardback book cover without any pages inside it. Uh, so a diptych would usually consist of two solid flaps made out of you know, something hard, like wood usually, like uh, she she says often ebony or boxwood, and they would be attached at the edges with some kind of hinge so you could sew them together with, uh, with string or thread or with leather straps, and this would allow them to open and close like the cover of a book. And the diptych was used generally as a temporary storage space for information. So the inside surfaces of these flaps that open and close would be coated with wax. And then writing could be scratched into the wax with a sharp implement or with a stylus. And then the wax surface could be reused simply by rubbing out the indentations or scratches bearing the writing, essentially erasing the board and preparing it to record new information again. And these could be used for all kinds of things, for taking notes about something, for sending a message to someone. It was a general purpose, reusable writing surface. But then there comes in a mystery. So we know that there was this diptych device, but we don't know who or when it, it first occurred to to simply sew pages of parchment or papyrus in between the flaps of the diptych uh, we don't know who came up with this idea where it first emerged we know we, we think it probably happened first in the first century CE uh, because we have some archaeological evidence of code- codices from within the first century and the Latin poet Marshall who lived from 38 to 104 CE mentions this invention uh, he talks about it in some verses that he wrote and published in the the 80s I believe between the years like 84 and 86 talking about how awesome these new parchment codices are and he he tells you specifically in his poem where you can buy them (laughs) which I like because poems of today that you know they don't usually just like include free advertisements for shops for things Um, (laughs) which is a shame they should they should really monetize that right exactly so I found a translation that was cited in a in a BBC article by a writer named Keith uh, Houston or Houston that I'm going to refer back to in a minute. Uh, But this translation of the the section from Marshall's verses goes, you who long for my little books to be with you everywhere and want to have companions for a long journey buy these ones which parchment confines within small pages. Give your scroll cases to the great authors. One hand can hold me. (laughs) Which is great. You know, he's like, oh, it's so sad. You can't travel with my books because they're on scrolls. Well, you can now take them with you on take me with you on the road. And then, uh, yeah, all, the, all those, uh, you know, the the homers and whatever, you can cram them into a scroll, stick them in a jar somewhere. That's fine. <laughs>
1: No, this is great. It's like saying, you know, my my books, you know, I mean, this in the work. I'm not a, one
0: of the great authors, but my work will be a part of your life. Right. Uh, yeah. And then he goes on to say, uh, oh, by the way, here's where you can get them, uh, so that you are not ignorant of where I am on sale and don't wander aimlessly through the whole city. I will be your guide and you will be certain. Look for Secundus, the freedman of learned lucensis, behind the threshold of the Temple of Peace and the Forum of Pallas. So there you go. I mean, look him right up. <laughs> but it does not make me wonder, like, how recent of an invention this was. Like, was there only one shop in the Roman Empire selling selling the codex at this time? Or was it like, you know, did people generally sort of know what they are, but he was trying to spread the word? or I don't know. It's not quite clear.
1: I mean, it could have been in a in a sense kind of like the like the early days of like the iPhone or the iPad, right? Mm-hmm. You maybe you couldn't get them everywhere; you had to go to that Apple store, right? This was the right. uh, uh,
0: Secundus had the Apple store of the day. <laughs> Yeah, look up Secundus, then you can take me everywhere. I love it. So, uh, So even though Marshall thought that the Parchment Codex was great, it did not immediately take off. Instead, for hundreds of years, books within the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean region would remain this mix of codices and scrolls, with codices slowly gathering greater popularity over the decades. I've seen some sources assert that the codices became mainstream in maybe like the third or fourth centuries. Uh, Howard says that it wasn't really until the fifth century that the Codex became extremely common, commonplace. But whenever you date the accomplishment of the the Codex takeover, it's clear that it wasn't overnight. It was a long, slow march. And there's another really interesting thing that I learned. I was reading an article uh, for the BBC by by this author, Keith Houston or Houston, who the author of a book called The Book, A Cover-to-Cover Exploration of the Most Powerful Object of Our Time. And he points out an interesting cultural trend that emerges that ties book technology to specific religious groups. Uh, He writes, quote, Rome's pagan majority, along with the Jewish population of the ancient world, preferred the familiar form of the scroll. The empire's fast-growing Christian congregation, on the other hand, enthusiastically churned out paged books containing gospels, commentaries, and esoteric wisdom. And uh, since I, I've read this in several other sources, that there seemed to be this, this uh, preference for the Codex specifically, I mean, among Christians generally, but specifically, I believe, among the Christians of North Africa. And it, it, it's interesting to wonder, I don't know if there's an answer for why in particular the Codex took off with Christians within the region and, and only more slowly spread to the other religious groups. I mean one one can only
1: assume that it just had to do with the advantages of codices and how they uh, particularly applied to those groups. I mean maybe it's the
0: mobility uh, for instance. Right. So yeah, we know several things about them. They're they're maybe easier to leaf through quickly and reference things. They're easier, they're smaller and more compact that you can take them, you know, carry them around more easily. I mean, when I think about some of the great early uh codices in in the archaeological record a lot of them that come to mind are christian documents you know like the mm-hmm. the books of the nagamati library and stuff like that
1: yeah yeah i mean also you could get into the, the fact that that
0: uh, perhaps they're easier to secret away that could be possible as well yeah
1: all right on that note we're going to take a break but when we come back we will dive into the world of mesoamerican codices shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us
0: with free samples
4: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you will get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details. Today's episode
0: is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
1: All right, we're back so uh you're probably some of you are probably wondering, well, what about uh, codices from other parts of the world? In fact, some of the more uh famous codices from elsewhere in the world are for instance, the Mayan codices, oh yeah. And uh, despite the name, you know th- these were these were not uh, codices in the strictest sense of the word. Um, these were typically long folded sheets um, that were uh, that were more in keeping with that um, that accordion style system we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so yeah, if you're being very strict about the definition of a codex as you know having whole flipping pages front and back, uh, this is not going to fit that description. But they are incredibly... <laughs> Incredible works, and they reveal a great deal about, say, Mayan culture. Now, I've seen them referred to as screenfold codices, and uh, and uh, and some writers, such as Victor Wolfgang von Hagen, author of um, 1943's *Paper and Civilization*, they are very firm on the position that these were definitely books. That you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't try and like skirt them out of the, the you know the way of the the, the book uh, categorization. Like these were books. Uh, to be very clear.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're in general going with the bigger definition of the book. And scrolls are books as well for us. Yeah. So I was uh,
1: reading more about these, um, about uh, Mayan codices in particular, in The Construction of the Codex in Classic and Post-Classic Period Maya Civilization by Dr. Thomas J. Tobin of Duquesne University, which incidentally, uh, I learned today, Werner Herzog attended school there in the 1960s. Huh. Everything comes back to Herzog. Uh, though there, there again, we, have a, we do have a, a South American connection there with Herzog, of course. But uh, at any rate, um, Tobin points out that the Romans were making advancements in what we think of as the codex between 100 and 700 CE, as we were previously discussing. But at that, during that same time period, the Mayan civilization in Mesoamerica was making advances in their own recording of information on paper. He writes that the Maya developed paper pretty early in the millennium. Based on archaeological evidence, they were making bark paper in the early 5th century CE. Basically, the idea is that they were already using bark cloth tunics, and from that developed hoon, a writing surface that could be used to record information. Now, the cloth in question was apparently a kind of tapa cloth, and it was made from not the outer bark, but the inner bark of certain trees. And this evolved into papermaking uh, over time. And the result is apparently somewhat superior to papyrus by many estimations. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, this is especially interesting. Here's a quote from uh, from Tobin in this uh, write up. "Quote: The Maya developed paper, screen, fold codices as a direct step beyond carving information into stone buildings and stele. Unlike Western paper making, which took a more circuitous route to reach its final form—single sheets, papyrus rolls, and then leafed codices." So I found that that interesting. This idea that, 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 that again the Maya make a, a direct jump. seemingly from carving into stone to using these codices. Huh, yeah. Now, one of the great tragedies here, of course, is that despite records of thousands of Mayan codices in the inventories of Spanish conquistadors who made contact with the Mayans in the 16th century. The vast majority of these codices were destroyed, uh, later due to their, uh, either the, either they were seen as being satanic in nature being, you know, just, you know, there's there something dangerous about them, or they were just seen as useless, just, you know, garbage to be disposed of. And so most of them were disposed of. Um, I, I, uh, I think, um, uh, what. A, the source I was reading here there were like there are like four complete codices of the Mayas left in the world, and that 's it. you know just this vast wealth of information, these libraries of information are just lost to us just just one more horror of the subjugation of the Maya people by european
0: invaders um, yeah the, um, that kind of destruction of knowledge is just like such a blasphemy. Yeah, so like just you know without getting
1: into the just sort of the larger horror of that whole situation, just in terms of trying to understand how the the Mayans made paper, you know what was it, what what was their original paper making process? It becomes difficult because then researchers have to you know they have to try and reconstruct their methods based on you know the few remaining codices, but also a lot of secondary evidence, uh, looking to modern traditions in that part of the world and sort of you know backtracking from that, and then of course engage. Engaging in a lot of experimentation so Tobin himself uh, tries this out in this paper uh, you know trying to create his own Mayan paper and ultimately his own Mayan uh, codex as best we can tell it was probably an, an intricate process that by necessity lines up with some of the steps used in other p- paper making processes. Uh, likewise, there is some guesswork involved in the evolution of the craft, how it developed uh, from that you know that the garment craft that we already mentioned we ultimately you know, know more with certainty about, say, Egyptian and Chinese papermaking, but you know, it's, it's really a shame because the Mayan technology was pretty advanced, uh, it, and it hasn't received as much attention, in part due to the cultural destruction. I certainly recommend anyone out there to, to 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 when you get a chance look up the Mayan codices and look at some of the examples of the surviving codices uh, the photographs of them because they are really fascinating with all of the, uh, the you know the Mayan writing and glyphs inside of it uh, mm-hmm. uh, they 're beautiful to behold and you in some of the pictures you get a real good sense of the the, the folds that are involved here
0: yeah, well, especially this emphasis on paper uh, brings me back to the materials on which. Writing is preserved and how fundamental that is to the the history of book technology, Uh, because, you know, we talked about in the previous episode about the various advantages of parchment and vellum versus papyrus, but. Basically, everything we're we're talking about in the ancient world is going to be relatively difficult to produce, and and you're going to have a more limited supply of it than we would have of uh, say say paper today. So maybe we should go back and look at uh, another branch on the paper tree here, and and look at the Chinese origins of paper.
1: Yeah, yeah. This so this is an area that we know a lot more about. Um, so. Uh, yeah, previously we touched on the Chinese origins of paper uh, in roughly, what well, I think we said 105 CE, and this is nearly a thousand years ahead of the Europeans.
0: I think there's some dispute about the dating of the origins there of is. paper in China. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into some of that here. Traditionally, credit for the invention of paper is given to one Sai Lun, uh, who was an imperial eunuch, and he is said to have created paper or Xi, uh, which Andrew Robinson in 7D and Inventions of the ancient world says was defined in contemporary dictionaries as, quote, a mat of refuse fibers from tree bark, hemp remnants, cloth rags, and old fishing
0: nets. Yeah. uh, To complement this, I I was reading a section in Howard about the production of paper here in in China, and she says that the Chinese originally used silk fiber to make paper. Uh, And obviously, this would have made a paper of a high quality, but this was going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. And over time, this was replaced with hemp fiber, which was cheaper. And then after that, replaced with the sort of uh, melange of things you're talking about. Uh, She says, uh, quote, a combination of bark, scraps of rags that had been discarded, and bast fiber. And remember, we mentioned bast fiber in the last episode. It's the vascular tissue of A plant that the plant uses to transport vital organic compounds produced by photosynthesis from one place to another within the plant's body. So it's kind of like a plant's arteries. You can imagine ropes and ancient paper made out of plant arteries. Yeah, kind of the scaffolding for the paper. Right. Uh, But so the process for this was that you would put all these various fibrous materials into a big vat of water, and then you would soak them through until they became a kind of pulp or paste. And then you would do your best to mix up and thoroughly emulsify the paste. And then you would press it flat to squeeze the water out. And then when it dried, you would have a a crude form of paper. Um, And just thinking about the role of the water here, I I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, our recent episode on... Soap. And it just makes me appreciate again how much usually just passes by us unnoticed regarding the deep connections between chemistry and the more human subjects like history and culture and literature. Mm-hmm. Like how the molecular properties of water are so deeply entwined in life and history and everything we know because of these polar opposite charges across the length of the water molecule, the potency of those charges to dissolve and ingest the cornucopia of the material world. Water is, of course, the defining substance of all cells and life processes. Remember that quote uh, we talked about on the soap episode? The the Hungarian biochemist Albert uh, Sint-Gergi who said that, quote, life could leave the ocean when it learned to grow a skin, a bag in which to take the water with it we're still living in water having the water now inside yeah and and we'll continue to 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 stress here just how important water is to
1: this advance of uh, of paper and ultimately bookmaking technology it's enough to make you wonder if you had say a desert world like um i don't know like like tatooine in star wars right Mm. like could a world like that um Like with a world like that, what would be the chances of sentient life forms developing paper that is that that functions in the same way our paper was? It seems like they might even have to have like
0: a different material. a solution to the same problems. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, for the same reasons you would have a hard time imagining paper, you would have a hard time imagining life forms at all, just because like it's the same reason that water is the substance of life on earth and the stepladder of all life and technology. It's the same reason that water is good for washing your hands and your dishes. And now it's also the same reason that it's used to make this pulp that we squeeze into paper. It's just the ultimate dissolver and ingester of all things. Uh, sorry, I guess that's kind of a digression, but. But every now and then, you just got to go down the water hole.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like I say, we'll keep going down the water hole in this episode. Well, let's come back to um, uh, that idea of the Chinese origin of paper uh, coming in roughly 105 CE. Again, that's the traditional story. Mm -hmm. However, there is archaeological evidence that indicates that a very early form of paper might have been in use in Western China. The... um, much earlier than this, pushing the probable beginnings of Chinese paper back to perhaps the second century BCE in tropical South and Southeastern China. Robinson even says that it's possible it began in the sixth or fifth centuries BCE uh, as this is when we've dated the washings of hemp and linen rags to. The idea here mm-hmm. is that someone might have accidentally discovered paper making while drying wet fibers on a mat. Oh, is is very central to some of the paper
0: making uh, uh, techniques that we are discussing here, and we'll continue to discuss in this episode. So, if I'm understanding this right, the the hypothesis is maybe somebody was washing some old rags and hemp and stuff in water, and then left it there for a while, and then it started to kind of mush up and turn into this pulp in the water, and then they they tried to dry it out, and it formed this this substance. Right. Though again,
1: this would be like a big question right It's basically saying. The thing that we think people were doing to accidentally discover paper, they were doing it far before we're dating the discovery of paper. So right. there's a certain amount of guesswork there. Right. Did they or didn't they? It's Impossible to say. Uh, I do want to note that uh, there are other historians, such as um, a History of China author, John Key, uh, who's a, a source I've come back to uh, uh, again and again for uh, for Chinese history-related matters. And he, for one, seems to stick to the first and second centuries CE as the origins of paper. Mm-hmm. And I think this is... Probably a matter of, you know, what is proven and recorded versus what seems possible based on additional evidence. Uh, so I think either way, it's it's fair to say that paper was a product of the Han dynasty, which you know gives us a nice uh, a nice spread between
0: uh, 202 BCE and 220 CE. Hmm. OK, but we do know once paper was established uh, in China, it did spread out from there, right?
1: Right. Uh, paper would have spread from China to Korea, Vietnam, and Japan, and eventually it would uh, follow the Silk Road out of the East into Central Asia and uh, then the Arab world. Um, I was reading more about this in uh, the books of James Burke, uh, specifically Connections and The Day the Universe Changed, uh, both of which were also uh, television series that I know a lot of our listeners uh, uh, grew up watching as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so more specifically, uh, Burke points out that uh, the Arabs end up acquiring uh, paper technology when they uh, overran um, uh, Samarkand in 751 CE, uh, during which they captured a Chinese workman who had been sent there to set up a paper manufacturing
0: factory. Hmm. And Samarkand is uh, that would be in what is Central Asia, like modern day Uzbekistan yeah yeah, so like basically the the Chinese had paper-making interests there,
1: and uh, when Arab forces overran the city, uh, they ended up um, uh, capturing the workmen and learned about it that way. And it, it took off from there. Uh, by 1050, for example, the Byzantine Empire was importing Arab paper. Now, uh, there are some wonderful sections in both books where Burke talks about, uh, about paper in the Arab world. Uh, in The Day the Universe Changed, uh, he points out that uh, the availability of paper, quote, encouraged the development of a highly literate community with regular postal services delivering correspondences as far away as India. And he also points to the Arab use of paper money, which
0: played into export and import duties. Uh, yeah th- this already suggests a very interesting back and forth between material economics and literary culture, like the idea of a, a the presence of a cheaper medium for transmitting the written word, potentially allowing a culture to become more literary just because like it's easier to produce written materials.
1: Yeah, I found this to be a fascinating passage. Uh, again, just Burke talking about the, the 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 Arab world by virtue of their paper technology, just having this this highly literate community and and better communication.
0: Yeah, and of course, papermaking would go on to become an important industry in like the medieval Islamic world, and you, you can you can chart the pathway that paper took through the medieval Islamic world to medieval Europe. Uh, there was some initial resistance to to paper in Europe. I was reading about this in Howard's book she says that uh, quote uh, in 1221 the holy Roman Emperor frederick ii issued a decree that invalidated any government documents written on paper such a Muslim tool being unwelcome in Christendom which is, what a, an amazingly ridiculous gesture uh, but she she points out that the sanction was not effective uh, she says quote paper mills spread quickly throughout Europe and as Mills became more efficient costs dropped and in the 15th century uh, to the to the point where paper was one-sixth the price of vellum. So it's just like the material advantages and the cheapness of paper overcame whatever kind of uh, attempted bans or cultural prejudice that that were attempting to keep paper out of Europe
1: oh yeah yeah absolutely and we 'll come back to this uh in a bit uh yeah because this uh, the prejudice against the new new paper is uh is, is such a wonderful topic uh, but first i 'd like to go back to China for just a minute uh with a word on printed books uh because this was also really cool i was again, I was reading in key's a History of China, which is a nice. Suitably thick tome, but concise tome, mobile mobile tome about the you know the, <laughs> the epic history of China. Uh, he discusses in one part a Buddhist book titled the Diamond Sutra, which is an old uh, uh, Mayana Sutra that was translated into various languages first in I think 400 CE, and it was so called the Diamond Sutra because for those who mastered mastered its teachings, it was said to cut away all worldly illusions like a diamond. Whoa! So there's a Tang Dynasty translation that was found, uh, uncovered again in 1900 CE, and it was subsequently dated to May 11th, 868 CE, and it consisted of seven printed pages uh, pasted together to form a scroll. Now, Key points out that this is sometimes wrongfully cited as the world's first printed book. But then he adds, quote, "...replicating images and written characters using inked blocks carved in relief, a process not much removed from that used for making molds for ceramics and metals, had been practiced in China since at least the 8th century." But it is the oldest complete printed text with a date. With a date. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, this is one worth looking up a picture of because it's really beautiful to look at. The, the art inside um, uh, is, is just Absolutely beautiful. Uh, yeah. So I was reading others consider this to be the oldest surviving printed book in the world. And it's, it's worth noting. Key, Key makes a, Key makes a point on this. Uh, this was seven centuries before Gutenberg. This was 11 centuries before the printing of India's scripts. Uh, Key contends that this was, quote, undoubtedly the most momentous of all Chinese inventions. As a result, Europe and India still have dozens of languages and literatures, but China only one. Uh, now, uh, I, he's, you know, making, he's not saying that China only has one language uh, per se here, because obviously China has numerous languages. Um, but, uh, but just talking about the consolidated, um, uh, you know, uh, focus on a single literature, uh, in a single language within Chinese history.
0: Yeah. Well, I think this would go back to what we talked about in the, uh, the Chinese typewriter episode, right? With the mm-hmm. idea that the. Uh, am I correct in thinking the different spoken languages of Chinese uh, would still use the same written script? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
1: And and yeah, I I will remind people, if you're interested in that, if you want more about Chinese language, go back and listen to that. uh, Was it one episode or two? I can't recall.
4: I think it was just just one. One
1: one really long episode (laughs) about the Chinese typewriter. Yeah. We talked with the author, uh, Thomas S. Mulaney, who wrote Chinese typewriter, a history. In his book, uh, Keyes stresses that the real infotech revolution took place mostly during the five dynasties, ten kingdoms period, uh, which would have been 907 to 979 CE. Uh, The first use of movable type may also date to this period, he adds, but the earliest authoritative account of it being used would come a few decades later uh,
0: in the early 11th century. All right, I think we need to take another break, but when we come back, we can discuss paper making its way to Europe.
4: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically
0: Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon
2: when a thought hits you.
0: All right. We're back now. uh, Earlier, we already mentioned the idea of the influx of uh, paper making technology into Europe through the Muslim world in the Middle Ages and some attempts to 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 stem the tide of uh, oncoming paper technology. But ultimately, any attempts of those sorts would fail. Paper was destined to be the writing material of choice.
1: That's right. And uh, so we already discussed, uh, we already already mentioned how paper from the Arab world is going to make its way into Europe. Now, specifically, it ends up spreading through the Arab world to Moorish Spain, specifically, um, I I believe it's pronounced uh, Shativia, which is south of Valencia. And this is where the Moors established paper mills. And from here, the technology spread to Christian Europe. Now, an interesting note from Burke uh, about paper making technology in both connections and the day the universe changed water powered paper milling was uh, in effect by at least 1280. Again, the power of water coming into play here, mm-hmm. where, uh, where it was used in the Italian marshes. Basically, water powered trip hammers were used in these factories to pound linen that was submerged in water to produce a white pulp, which is then spread out to dry on wire mesh and then pressed in a screw press to squeeze the water out. And then you would hang it up to dry. Uh, And then here's another fun. This is uh, classic connections here. Uh, Burke writes that the timing was just right on the mesh front uh, because, again, it was like a metal mesh and it was the work of tailors who had far less work to do following the Black Death. These were craftspeople who would have previously been stitching gold and silver threads into garments. Uh, But now in the wake of the Black Death, there was garment making was 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 less of, of a business There was there was less of it to go around. So these very uh, craftspeople were now making these fine meshes that were so important to the papermaking process. Anyway, back to the water-powered paper factories here. By the 14th century, these new advancements in, in water-powered technology allowed linen rags, which were collected by rag and bone men a lot of the times, to be pounded into cheap, durable paper. And by the end of the 14th century, the price of paper in Bologna had dropped by 400%. So this was cheaper than parchment. But parchment purists, they, uh, some of them resisted the change, insisting that, well, parchment can last a 1,000 years years but this new paper i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i mean I'd,
0: I'd grant i think parchment probably is more durable than paper right i'm
1: yeah I'm not but positive 400 uh cheaper yeah you know, <laughs> it's hard to argue with that it certainly is Now, I want to throw in a note about rag and bone men. Now, some of you might hear that and you might think, well, this sounds like reanimate corpses uh, (laughs) that are doing the the will of the uh, of the papermakers. No, they were not. They were. uh, But they were impoverished junk dealers that traveled around England. They were also known as bone grubbers, and they did indeed scavenge bones uh, as well as junk for resale. In fact, Burke writes in Connections that the bone scavenging uh, that, you know, that was previously their main gig was all about collecting the bones for use in fertilizer. Hmm. But they then came to collect and sell old rags to the paper makers. And it was a tra- tradition that lasted for centuries. Linen rags especially were excellent
0: raw materials for high quality, durable paper. Man, that brings to mind a couple of things. First of all, like this, uh, the class of people who collect things counterintuitively that they can sell to. Well, it makes me think of in ancient Rome the people who collected urine from uh, from city latrines in order to sell to you know laundries and and the various businesses Uh, that used urine for you know its properties at the time. I remember I believe it was the Emperor Vespasian who uh, first put a tax on urine in order to support something he wanted to do, and and that's where the uh, the the phrase "money has no smell" comes from you know somebody was like challenging him on this and saying the tax on urine to raise funds that's disgusting and he's like I don't smell anything on the money <laughs>
1: urine also a friend of the
0: uh, the alchemist oh absolutely yeah oh who was it who had the big old vat of urine experiment oh goodness was, well, that was when we Magnus? were
1: talking about. Uh this is when, in our history of the match, we got into this, yeah. uh, when the invention episode about the match. Um, I forget the, the the exact timetable there, but, the, yeah, there were some key alchemists that were um, experimenting with urine. And, uh, Hennig Brand, it was,
0: what, the big vat okay, of urine. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that now. So, yeah, if you
0: want more urine-based content, uh, go look up that invention episode. On the matchstick, you know, for a brief literary digression, I could not help but think when you were talking about the rag and bone men, the the rag and bone collectors. Uh, I couldn't help but think about the poem "The Circus Animals' Desertion" by the famous Irish poet William Butler Yeats, and its image of uh, the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. The, so <laughs> it, it, this is it, it's it's really interesting. So th- this poem was written in the final years of Yeats's life, and in the early parts of the poem he describes a kind of poetic jealousy of his younger self based in the agony of feeling that the imagination and inspiration that came so easily to him in youth have now abandoned him and he finds himself in old age struggling to find something meaningful or interesting to say uh so in, in you know if you if you have a felt yourself in one of those writerly moods, you will know the agony of it. Uh, but Instead, he finds himself nostalgically obsessing about the characters and themes that he had written about in earlier poems of his. One of uh, those subjects being one of our favorite mythical buddies, the Irish hero Cú or Cú Ah, oh yes. Uh, so he, so just to read a couple of these lines, he's, you know, he's musing on these things he used to write about all the time. He says, and when the fool and blind man stole the bread, Cuchulain fought the ungovernable sea, heart mysteries there, and yet when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me. Character isolated by a deed, to engross the present and dominate memory, players and painted stage took all my love, and not those things that they were emblems of." Which is an interesting admission, like he's saying, I think, that you know, he once believed he was using mythical figures and stories as metaphors or allegory to convey some underlying message about principles or politics or whatever. But now admits that the underlying message was always sort of a pretense and what he really liked were the mythical elements themselves at their face value. He liked the heroes. Mm. He liked the settings. He liked the images. Yeah, this is not a work of his I was familiar
1: with, but but I really. I really like that sentiment. Uh,
0: And and then in the end of the poem, when he gets to that image I mentioned, he asks himself, like, well, where did these images first come from when you first, you know, when I wrote them in the beginning? And in its concluding lines, he writes, uh, now that my ladder is gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Oh, man. Uh, and I know this last line is interpreted by some critics to refer to the paper on which the poem is composed, the rag and mm. bone shop being, of course, the place where you would buy paper, I guess, or depo- you know, sell the stuff to make the paper. Uh, and so for another weird connection between technology and literature, I think this ending suggests to me that sometimes imagination comes out of pure labor. He's suggesting that You know, the same way inventors are often not people dreaming up ideal machines in the solitude of an ivory tower, but people working with many hours of hands-on experience with a particular mechanical problem. And in the same way, often the poet who conjures great imagery and themes is not the one who, you know, shoots lightning bolts of genius straight out of their brain, but it's somebody who does a lot of work on the page, writing and writing lots of junk until things begin to click and beauty emerges. Just pounding the pulp
1: until you have uh, you can make a, a fine piece of parchment uh, out of uh, out of old rags. Yeah. Now, uh, to go back to the, the paper industry itself, uh, uh, there, there's another bit from Burke here that I wanted to share. He writes that, quote, as the paper mill spread, so too did the spirit of religious reform, uh, unquote. And this would have been alongside literacy itself and scriptoriums. And as the price of paper fell, the development of eyeglasses advanced to meet the demand for literacy, mm. something we discussed in our uh, our, uh, our uh, podcast uh, episode of Invention on the sunglasses. But there would still be too, uh, far too few scribes in europe to meet the demands of the business world at the time uh, even if you were now making s- cyborg scribes via your your spectacle technology you know extending the the the, the basically the uh, you know the life of a scribe by altering their eyes with these fabulous lenses um, you still needed one invention yet that will really uh, you know boost literacy enough uh, to you know to give you the scribes you need for the for the the business world to thrive. And that, of course, is the printing press. But that, as they say, is another story and shall be told another time.
0: Man, I'm not done thinking about how uh, not just the contents of the books we read, but the physical form of the book has shaped our brain. I, I think that there are there are insights yet uh, left unearthed on this subject. Absolutely. All right, we're going to have to close
1: it out for now, uh, but we hope you enjoyed our our two-episode look at the the invention of the book, the invention of the Codex. Perhaps this is just the beginning of a, of a journey for us as we you know, come back to, uh, to additional literary inventions, uh, uh, paper inventions uh, in subsequent episodes. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to blow Your Mind, uh, for you who long for our little podcast to be with you everywhere and want to have companions for a long journey, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Yeah, look up Secundus uh, behind the, the, the Temple of Pallas. right. And when you get our podcast from Secundus, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe for more. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your
3: favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.
2: Zumo Play.